Good morning, Fairhaven. My name's Jeremy, one of the pastors here, and uh, I, I'm excited about this weekend for more reasons than what happened yesterday, right? Uh, I, we launch into a brand new chunk of the book of Matthew this week. Uh, that for some of you, you watch that bumper video, and like it starts with like Christmas and mangers, and like that feels right for this time of the year, and then Easter bunnies and eggs and what is going on? See, we're, we're entering a chunk of the book of Matthew. If you're new with us, we started the book of Matthew at the end of last year. So we've been in the book of Matthew for this entire year so far. And we find ourselves today, the first Sunday of Advent, when we look forward to Christmas, to celebrating that a baby has been born. Also, in a section of the book of Matthew, where we're looking at what's going to be the really the last day of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. We know it's not the last day of Jesus' life, right? Because we know that he's going to rise and he's going to ascend. But we're looking at the book of Matthew in this, this last day that's going to lead to Jesus' crucifixion. So we're kind of holding these two stories together, looking, yes, at the birth of Jesus and what that means, and also the totality of Jesus' life and what that means for us this Christmas. So it's kind of Christmas and Easter. We called it beginnings and endings. Uh, but before we jump into Christmas and Easter and how these things hold together, how was everybody's Thanksgiving? Good Thanksgiving? Awesome. Oh, that's great. Um, our Thanksgiving, it was, it's a great day. It's, uh, Thanksgiving for us was, was like a, a lot of years where we kind of spend each year we go to like my wife's side one year and then mine the other. Uh, this year we were at my wife's family's house and is anybody else, are we the only ones that like Thanksgiving dinner is a little fancier than like a normal like Tuesday? Right? Like, uh, so we sat down and like normally it's the, the plates are stacked and like the silverware is in the drawer, right? But like this time you sit down and like, the, the table's all set, the plates there and the silverware. And uh, we sat down for Thanksgiving lunch and my, my wife sat down with one of our kids to her left. And so my wife sits down and grabs her fork and our kid looks at her and goes, why'd you take my fork? Like, well, I didn't take your fork, it's mine. Yours is on the left side of your plate. And like our kid looks down and is like, I have silverware on both sides of my plate? Like, what is happening? So uh, apparently we don't teach, like, table etiquette really well in our house. Uh, but uh, our kids were baffled at the fact that there's, like, so which one's mine? Uh, but uh, the story we're going to jump into this, into this morning, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about table etiquette. We're going to talk about table order. Not necessarily, like, where the fork and the knife go. But we're going to look at a meal... And we're going to talk about some placement around a table. And my hope is, as we look at this, this order of this table, this placement around a table, we're going to open up a whole lot of things in a story that for some, some of us might be a really familiar story. And my hope is, when we open the story up, we find that there is so much meaning for all of us. Uh, so we're going to start by reading the story all the way through. Uh, Matthew chapter 26. And also, if you're somebody who likes to take notes, I forgot to bring the paper up here, but uh, we actually produce a, kind of a little study guide, a, a devotional a study guide, a way to dive deeper in our sermons. Uh, each time we start like a little block of, of the book of Matthew or, or whatever will come after Matthew, uh, those are available at the Information Center. 
or they're available online that you can kind of follow along and answer some questions and take Sundays even a little bit deeper. Uh, But in Matthew chapter 26, let's jump in. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. When he took a cup, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, This is a story of, of an event Uh, that we call the Last Supper. This is the last meal that Jesus will eat before he ends up being crucified. It's, It's a story that for some of us is familiar because this is a story, this is a passage that in a lot of ways kind of directs how we do communion and why we do communion when we gather for communion. But I, I want to start by diving into the, into the story. Before we get to table order and placement, uh, we know this, yes, this is the last supper that Jesus will eat before he's crucified, but we also know this isn't just a normal dinner. This happens on a Thursday night. It's not just a normal meal. Uh, The passage begins by telling us what kind of meal it is. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So this isn't just any meal. This is the Passover meal. So why does that matter? Well, for us, especially those like within Christian tradition, like we have two major holidays, right? They're kind of the two holidays that we're slamming together in this series. There's Christmas and there's Easter. And our holidays point back to an event that we remember that we tell stories about at our holidays, right? Christmas, we tell stories about how, how God came into the world as a baby in Jesus. Easter, we talk about how this baby who is born will give his life for the world and will rise again. For us, we have kind of our two major holidays. For the Jewish people, they had seven kind of festivals, seven holidays. And of those, they all looked back, like ours do, at an event that had happened. So they'll tell stories around this event Really, the biggest of the holidays is Passover. 
Passover, this holiday, every year, when the Israelite people would gather together, they would share a meal and they would remember. They remember something that God had done all those years before when their ancestors were slaves in Egypt. And they would remember the story about how for 430 years the Israelite people were slaves in Egypt until one day, one day the Israelite people, they cry out. And we read that God heard their cry and God sent them a deliverer, a guy by the name of Moses. And God told Moses, go to the Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let the people go. So, Pharaoh, so Moses went to the Pharaoh. And uh, Moses comes with a number of signs. He does a, a number of things to try to convince the Pharaoh that God indeed wants him to let the Israelite people go. And time and again, the Pharaoh says no. It, it leads to the last moment, this last sign, where God tells Moses to tell the people that the Israelite people, they are to slaughter a lamb. They're to take the blood from the lamb, put it on the doorpost of their house, because that night... God was going to send the destroyer through camp. And any home that did not have the lamb slaughtered and the blood on the doorpost, they would lose their firstborn son that night. So the Israelite people, they did it. They slaughter the lamb. They take the blood. They put it on the doorpost. And that night, this destroyer passes by. But to all of the Egyptians, they woke up finding their firstborn dead. Uh, This event would lead the Pharaoh to finally let the Israelite people go free. So every year at Passover, you would have a meal. Uh, They would share lamb, remembering the time that a lamb was slaughtered. And because the lamb was slaughtered, they were then given freedom. They were rescued from Egypt. Every year, It's why Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem, because if you could, you wouldn't just celebrate Passover anywhere. You would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, the time a lamb was slaughtered, and because of the the blood of the lamb, you were set free. So Jesus and his disciples, they're together for this Passover meal. And then there's an interesting exchange between Jesus and the disciples right in the middle of the meal. Did you catch it? Like the the details, we're going to read it again. I want you to pay attention to the details of how they're sitting, of what's going on in this conversation, because Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed. Jesus knows what's coming. Uh, let's, Let's read how it goes. It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. How's Jesus sitting? He's reclining. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Uh, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Uh, Jesus answered, You have said so. So we have Jesus reclining at a table. We have Jesus telling the room that somebody in this space is going to betray him. Uh, Jesus says, The one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me. Like, what does that 
mean? Because anybody have any like football parties this weekend or this fall? And like you bust out like the the the, um, the spinach artichoke dip and like whoever's dipped, everybody has, right? So like why does Jesus say something and right away Judas is singled out saying, hold on, hold on, you mean you're talking about me? What's going on there? Well, in order to understand what's going on in this meal, I, I first want to blow up everything that we've, we've learned through our culture around what the Last Supper would have looked like. Because I think it's easy for us to have our mental image shaped by a lot of the art. A lot of major artists have, have painted this Last Supper, right? If we throw Da Vinci, if we go next. So the Last Supper, Jesus, where's Jesus always positioned in the, in the paintings? Jesus is dead center, right? Because of course he is. He's the host. He's the, he's, he's the most important person at the table. So he's in the middle. Disciples are on the side. Uh, kind of another rendition of a similar painting. The next one. Yeah, again, a little bit clearer. But Jesus in the middle. All the disciples on the side. And have you ever noticed when you look at these paintings how odd it feels that they're all sitting on the same side of the table? Like, can you imagine showing up to a hostess and being like, hey, uh, so we need a table for 26. And the hostess looks at you and goes, 26? But like, so do you have more coming? Well, no. We just have this thing that we like to sit all on the same side, right? Like, what is happening? And Jesus sitting at that table, is Jesus reclining? Like, no, he's sitting in a chair. So like, when you think of reclining, how, how do you think of reclining? If you're going to recline, what are you going to do? You're going to kind of tip back and throw the feet up, right? Like, that's how we envision a table and what it means to recline at the table. Now, this hopefully doesn't come as a giant shock. That's not how they would have actually eaten the Last Supper. That's not how they would have eaten a meal in the first century. That's not how you eat a Passover meal. They would have eaten around a table that doesn't have chairs, but it has cushions that you recline on. They would have sat around a table that we know is a triclinium, a kind of a rendition of it looks like this. It's called a triclinium. There are three sides to the table, and it's open in the middle. The reason it's open in the middle is if you are the person who is going to be serving those who are eating, you now have access to, you can fill another cup of somebody's wine, you can give them more food, you can clean up. The center is accessible for kind of the, the servants, the people that are helping. And then around the outside of the table, you aren't sitting on a chair, you aren't reclined back, feet kicked up. But what you do is, in the ancient world, you have a clean hand, your right hand, and an unclean hand, your left. So what you would do is you would then recline on one of those cushions, meaning you would essentially lay down on your left side, on your left arm, and then you would use your right arm to eat. Does this make sense? So everybody is laying towards the table, everybody laying on their left side. So this one, uh, yeah, okay. So next slide. We think of... Yeah, there we go. So in our picture, we have the host, the most important person, right in the middle, right? Jesus sits in the middle of the table. In a triclinium, that's not where the most important person sits. The most important person, the host of the meal, sits right here. It's the second seat in from the left. This is the host. The host then gets to determine... I told you we were going to talk about table placement. So the host gets to determine who, who sits in a couple other... There are a couple other important seats around the table in a triclinium meal. 
Uh, the first, the most important, the guest of honor, is going to sit just to the left of the host. That one. And again, the host decides who sits where. So just to the left, this is the, per- this is the guest of honor. This is the most important guest at the table. Uh, the second most important guest is going to sit right there to the right of the host. So the most important, the guest of honor, is to the left, which if you're laying on your left side, where is the guest of honor? Behind you. And then the second most important guest is to your right, or kind of when you're laying on your left side, kind of in front of you. Do you can we picture this? Okay. One other seat I want to show you at the table, and it's on the other side of the triclinium. So if we look at the right side, the very last seat on the right side of the triclinium this is the seat where like, the, the servant for the, the, the meal would sit. So you have the host, the guest of honor, the kind of second highest guest of honor, and then you have the servant. So now if we were to kind of back up and zoom out from the top, we hear, so this is a model of a triclinium. We have Jesus and his 12 disciples around the table. We know Jesus is the host. So we know where Jesus is, and doesn't understanding uh, the way they would have eaten a meal at this table make sense of even some other stories? That we have a story in a different gospel about a, a woman coming up and anointing Jesus' feet. I'd always read that as a kid thinking, I mean, so like, she must have had to like get under the table and like she's crawling under the table to like anoint Jesus' feet at this meal. Like, weird, right? Like, that's weird. But if Jesus is reclining at a table with his feet facing out, leaning towards the table, you approach that table, what is the first thing you're, what is the first thing right there? Everybody's feet. It makes sense in the story. So Jesus is reclining as the host of this meal. Meaning Jesus gets to decide who else goes where. So I want to play a game with you. I want to play the game. Let's try to figure out Who's in what seat? It's kind of like the who's on third, right? Like, who's in what seat? And in order to do that, uh, we got to jump a little bit to another gospel because we, we have four gospels, four, four books that tell the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they each are going to talk about this Last Supper, and we get a couple details out of John that I want to look at. So let's go to John. John 13. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, now quick pause, John, when John talks about himself, he always does it in like this weird, like humble brag, right? Like, uh, so when, when John talks about himself, it's always like, so two disciples ran to the tomb is Peter and then one who is faster. That's John. When John talks about like the one whom Jesus loved, John's talking about himself. So we know this is like John's little humble brag, like that's me. So one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, John, and said, ask him which one he means. Jesus had just told them that one of them was going to betray. Leaning back against Jesus, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Okay, let's go back to the triclinium. If Jesus is in the seat of the host, remember, laying down on his left side, if somebody is going to lean back into Jesus, if that somebody is the one whom Jesus loved, if that somebody is John, where's John sitting? Right in front of him, right? Uh, Let's go to the next slide. John's sitting there. Does that make sense? 
He's on his left side. He leans back into Jesus to ask him a question, which means John is seated in the place of, like, kind of the second highest guest of honor. Right? Okay. So if John's there, if Jesus is the host, where's, where, where's everybody else? Now, John, John kind of clues us off, I think, with, a, or with another detail in that passage we just read. So let's, let's put it back up. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and asked, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? So Peter, okay, let's look at Peter. Peter is in a position where Peter is able to motion to John. So envision this again. John is laying on his left side. So who's in front of John? Nobody. Everybody on his side is now behind him. Everybody on that, main, that kind of main top side, where are they? They're behind him. Now, we don't know for sure from John where Peter is, but if John is facing down and everybody on the right side is facing up because they're all laying on their left side, where is the seat that makes most sense that Peter is going to get John's attention to be able to motion? Likely, he's in the spot of the servant. He's on the other side, facing the other direction. They're looking straight across the table. He's able to motion to him. And doesn't this feel just like Jesus? Because John, we understand John is the the youngest of all of the disciples. Peter is believed to be the oldest of the disciples. He's kind of the chief disciple. He's the oldest of them. It's probably why Peter's always the one who's speaking up. And so Jesus flips the entire order upside down, right? The the person who's in the second guest of honor is the youngest. The person who's the servant is the oldest. It it would actually make even more sense if Peter's in the spot of the servant because of what happened a little bit earlier in Luke's account of the story. In Luke's account, they gather together. Jesus then starts to wash the disciples' feet. It says Jesus starts, and Jesus gets to Peter, and Peter says, Rabbi, you aren't supposed to wash my feet, because in the triclinium, who's the person who's supposed to do that work? The servant, where Peter is likely seated. So Jesus, one of the things I love about Jesus is everything, everything is so intentional. It's like he's always teaching something. And then it also makes sense about a conversation, kind of a dispute we read, that breaks out during the meal. Because this wouldn't have gone unnoticed to the disciples. And so uh, read what Luke says about a dispute that happens. Uh, Luke 22, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Which one of us is the most important? Who's the greatest? Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. The next one. Uh, But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is, Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus flips the whole order upside down. They start arguing about like which one of us is the greatest. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not like that. The greatest is the one who serves, who gives of themselves for the other. 
So uh, let's go back to our triclinium. If we have Jesus as the host, John is kind of that second seat of honor. If we have Peter likely across the table in the spot of the servant, I want to go back to what we read in Matthew. Because Matthew is going to give us a detail. Do you remember, do you remember when we read in Matthew, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And around the table, they all started saying, like, hold on, you're not talking about me, are you? And then Jesus says something. He makes a statement. Uh, Jesus says this. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. So if we go back to the triclinium. How many people have an opportunity to dip a hand into the same bowl as Jesus? The the person in front of him, to his right, which we know from John is John, and the person to his left. Which means who's seated in the guest of honor? Judas. When Jesus arranges his table, Jesus doesn't just give Judas a seat at the table. Jesus gives Judas the highest seat at the table as the guest of honor on the very night Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him. Jesus, if Jesus would have just given Judas a seat, would have been enough. But Jesus puts Judas in the seat of honor. Why? Well, I wonder if part of it is because he's trying to teach Judas something, right? Judas, Judas, no matter, first, no matter what you do, I will always love you, right? And Judas, there is a better way forward. You don't have to do, Judas, even with everything I know that you're about, I have not turned my back on you. I wonder if one of the reasons Jesus put Judas there was for Judas, I wonder if another reason why Jesus put Judas there may have been for you. Because I've I've been doing this long enough to know that, that there are some of us who question, who ask ourselves that question of like, could God really love me? Like, does God actually love me? Could God love me? And I've had a number of conversations with some of you, with people who who often you hear the like, but but you don't know that the things I've done and the decisions I've made and the people I've hurt along the way, could God really forgive that? Could he really love me? Or even bigger, maybe, am I even lovable? And I think, I wonder if one of the reasons Jesus put Judas in that seat is to let you know that it, whatever, whatever's happened, whatever decisions you've made, whatever things you've done, Jesus is saying there is always room at the table. There is always a seat for you. And regardless of what life has looked like, that Jesus is saying, I could not love you any less. For you, Maybe you're here and you need to hear that, that, that Jesus has a table, has a seat at the table for you. And it's not even just the, it's not just the seat on the other side, but Jesus has a seat right next to him. Because he could never love you less than he always has. Now for some of us, we might need to hold on to that. 
But what about the rest of, what, what about those of us who say, oh, okay, like I've given my life to follow Jesus. I've got no issue thinking that like I've got a seat at that table. I think there's a call in this story for us as well. And in order to see that, we need to finish the story. Uh, Jesus is going to end the meal uh, by saying these words. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, what meal are they eating? Passover, right? And what are they remembering at Passover? The time a lamb was slaughtered, and because of this, God would set the people free. And so Jesus at this meal says, yes, we remember that time from long ago when a lamb was slaughtered and God set the people free, but I'm here to tell you that God is doing it again, that this story was always to point to me, to my story and what I'm doing, because Jesus, Jesus will tell them that I am the lamb who will be slaughtered to set you free, not just from Egypt, But I am the lamb who will be slaughtered to set you free from the very powers of sin and death themselves. It's uh, the book of John. Uh, John describes when Jesus starts his ministry, John the Baptist will see him and say this. Uh, The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At Christmas, we remember Jesus is born and what is he placed in? A manger. And a manger, it was not a first century version of a crib or a bassinet. Like, Jesus was placed in a feeding trough for likely what kind of animal? Sheep. Who are some of the very first people who show up, who, who God announces the birth of his son to? Shepherds. Jesus is the lamb who was sent to free the people, not just from Egypt, but to set the people free from sin and death themselves. And so Jesus is at this meal trying to help his disciples see that the entire story, the entire thing they've been doing, that this meal they've been having as a people for thousands of years was always to point to him and what was going to happen to him that weekend. But do you remember what the disciples were concerned with? Who's, who's the best? Who's the greatest? Jesus is trying to help them frame this entire thing in this giant story of God. And the disciples are worried about their role. But where do I fit? But what about me? So I think one of the threats to us still today is that we still have this tendency to want to try to turn things to me. And to, to show you that, I want to, uh, I want to show you a little clip of one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, Rocky 2? Rocky 2, right? There's this, so in, in Rocky 2, you have Rocky, and there's this giant, giant like climax of a scene right near the end of the movie. It's if, if you think of Rocky, you think of this scene. I want to show you the, the scene.
Okay. And, and like we cheer for Rocky, right? The like biggest scene of the entire movie, and I want to name that uh, I, I first saw this clip and heard what I'm about to do from a different pastor guy by the name of Francis Chan, and I've, I've never forgotten it. So Chan showed the clip, and then he asked the question, so in this scene, like the scene the entire movie is leading up to, did you see the girl in the green coat? Did you see her? She was there. She was super excited. She crushed her role. She was amazing. Did you see the girl in the green coat? I want to show you the girl in the green coat. Do you see her? It's the girl in the green coat. She was super excited. She, she came up a little bit late, but like she didn't let that deter her. Like She rounded the group and made her way right inside. She crushed it. Did you catch the girl in the green coat? No, because her job is to be part of the thing, cheering for Rocky, and she does her job well if you don't notice her, right? Now, imagine, how do you think the girl in the green coat watches Rocky? If you're the girl in the green coat and Rocky 2 comes on, what are you going to do? Oh, so, so get this, like, I'm going to be in this, and so the, the whole thing leads up, like, oh, you're, you're going to pause at the right spot, and like, there I am, right? I'm the girl in the green coat. Now, uh, this movie was filmed over 30 years ago. Imagine. Ima- anybody traveling for, for Christmas? Anybody going to visit family or anything? Like, imagine you, uh, you at some point, you, you get on an airplane. You're headed somewhere. You're, you're seated by yourself. You sit down next to somebody. And uh, you, you, you don't know it yet, but you're seated next to the girl in the green coat. Right? And so you, you sit down in this airplane, and uh, you start this conversation, the person you're sitting next to, and you ask, like, so, so what do you do? And she says, well, I'm in movies. Really? No kidding. Like, what movie are you in? She's like, how, how do you not know? Like, I was in Rocky. Like, I was in the biggest scene of the entire... How, how do you not know? Like, this thing was about me. Like, I was there. I crushed it. It was the greatest scene of the entire movie. I, this thing was me. What do you think of her? Woo-hoo, right? Like, what? Because the reality, her job, her job was to join the crowd, to cheer for her five seconds... Because this story was always about somebody else. Her job was to join the crowd to cheer on the champion, the victor. I wonder, when Jesus' disciples were at that table, as Jesus is trying to help them see this much larger thing that was going on, if the disciples weren't a little bit like my hypothetical story of the girl in the green coat, Right, wanting to make the story about them. Saying, so, you know, but, but what does this mean for me? But this is, this is my story, Jesus, and you're a part of it. Well, Jesus is trying to help his disciples see that, no, 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 no. This story is this much longer story of what God has been doing through history to set his people free, to set us free, and was inviting his disciples to see themselves as, as people who have the ability to partner with Jesus, with God, in the work that God is doing of bringing all people around that table. See, I wonder if one of the threats to us today is that we might still want to make the story about us. 
is that we might still want to say, that, but this thing, I am the main character of my story, that we might say yes to Jesus because, Jesus, what can you do for me, right? That, that I, I think one of the threats is we might follow Jesus for what we think Jesus can do for us. And the whole time Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. No, like the call is that we get to partner with God in this much larger story that God has been writing from the very beginning and now God calls us invites us to be a part of that story that often it feels like the lives that make the most ripples the lives that have the most significance the lives whose impact continue far after they're gone are less the ones that make the story all about themselves and are more the ones who step into that call to give themselves to something bigger to invest in meaningful ways in those around them. And so for us, as we wrap today on this first Sunday of Advent, uh, for, for you, if you're here and you're wrestling with that question of, does God love me? Can God love, can anyone love me? My prayer is that you would hear Jesus say, not only is the answer yes, but that Jesus would give you the seat of honor at the table, regardless what, what it's looked like. May you know that God does love you, that the story of Christmas, the story of Easter, is, fat, is, is proof to the fact that God does and will never stop. And then for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, may it be an invitation for us to be intentional about the way we get to use our five seconds of fame, right? The way we get to use our screen time, the way we get to use our lives. Not to just make the thing about us, but to enter into this mission, this story that God has been writing from the beginning to help more and more people find their way back to him, to help more and more people find that there is a seat for them at the table, to help more people find their way back to God. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, God, for the way you teach, even in the way you put people in seats around a table, uh, we're grateful for what it means for us, knowing that there is nothing, nothing in, in, in all of creation that could separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. God, we pray that we would grab hold of that love. That we would not just know it, but that we would live it. And that we would invite more people to find themselves at that table declaring you as Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.